Thanks for tuning in to the HR Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Lucinda Carney. The HR Uprising is focused on helping forward-thinking people professionals deliver real lasting value in their organisations. I'm a chartered psychologist, speaker and trainer, and recently authored the best-selling business book, How to Be a Change Superhero. My day job is founder and CEO of software and training business Actus. This gives me the opportunity to work with other businesses like yours. We are focused on building a better workplace for people wherever they are located with the help of our performance, learning and talent management software and our training and consultancy services. Every week on the podcast, I will be covering different topics and challenges joined by relevant experts and real life people professionals. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really hope you enjoy and get value from this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising episode and this week I'm delighted that I have got Ruth Cornish joining me again from the HR Independence and she will introduce herself um, in a moment and um, and Ruth's going to go through one of our HR roll-in series which we found is our series that we've put in place in response to I guess the challenges that both Ruth and I have come across that have been raised in groups if you are an independent HR professional or a standalone HR professional you know, we need to reach out to our network to work out what best practice is, to get guidance, top tips. So what we've done as part of this series is identify some of those recurring challenges and um, crowdsource some best practice and ideas. And Ruth's here to share one this week, which is about HR's role within disciplinaries. So hi, Ruth, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, Lucinda. Thanks for having me back. So I'm Ruth Cornish. I'm um, an HR professional. I've been in HR for 30 years, worked in the city, financial professional services, the public sector, and more recently for the last 11 years running my own practice, Amalor Limited. I'm also co-founder of HR Independence, known as HRI, which we launched at the end of September, which provides support for um, independent and standalone HR professionals. So you're in an ideal position to help with this. And I say these uh, HR rolling series came out of conversations that we'd had about the recurring challenges that you see on the Facebook group that you host and the HR independence bring to you. And, and alongside this, guys, anyone who's listening to this, if you want to refer back to it, um, Ruth and the team have written a series of blogs um, and the resources that we'll direct you to at the end of the podcast if you want to refer back to any of this. So HR's role in the disciplinary matter, um, Ruth, I say back in my day as a line manager, I might have been involved in this. I certainly wasn't involved particularly in this. I might be involved in educating managers on how to prevent disciplinaries. Um, but do you want to take a step by step on how, how you'd see we should what role we should play and what should sit with line manager, I guess, as well as part of it, too, isn't it? Yes, no, that's thank you. Um, so when you've got a potential disciplinary matter, there's two things that should be foremost on your mind. One is being a really, really, really clear what the policy and procedure is, because often people just don't know what that is and don't comply with it. And if you don't comply with it, that's a problem. But more importantly, establishing whether what the allegation actually is. So often when there's this sort of situation, there's a lot of noise, a lot of emotion, lots of information. And what you have to do is to decide whether an offence, if you like, has been committed um, and um, whether you need to organise an investigation. 
So if you decide that there is something that probably needs to be investigated, then you would be deciding upon an investigation. Contrary to popular belief, that may not be you as the HR lead. It may be someone, it could be anyone in the business, as long as they'd had training from you. And, and probably that would be quite good. Someone that was impartial, but maybe understood the circumstances or situation. It could even be the line manager, actually. And the investigation is just to establish whether you feel that there is, an, the, the allegation has taken place and whether there's a case to answer. And obviously you might decide that there isn't, and that would be the end of the process. And the key with all of this always, I would say, is communication with everybody. And often if someone is in inverted commas in trouble, and let's remind ourselves they're innocent until proven guilty, people don't communicate with that person. That's one of the mistakes I often see. The person that's being accused of something is the person that gets no information. And actually we, we can't treat them like they've done it until we've established that they have. Sometimes when we're investigating, we may have to suspend the person and there's a process to go through regarding that. We would spend them on full pay and explain to them why we were doing it. And the circumstances in which we do that, which would be not that common, would be where um, there's potentially a fraud or something like that. There was a health and safety issue or it would be impossible to investigate without them um, out of the, the workplace. Of course, at the moment, with us all working virtually, etc., that may not be necessary, but it's important just to understand whether that is necessary for the investigation to take place quickly, fairly and effectively. Can I just take a step back on this? And so, so if we're talking about this in terms of a disciplinary, how does this fit into the kind of concept of conduct and capability? So it feels like this is talking about someone who's allegedly done something wrong, as in which is very blatantly like, like you say, theft or I don't know, um, right. harassment or something. How does yeah. it differ with with people who perhaps are not performing um, or perceived to not perform? Are they in the same bag or how it's does, slightly how does different, it fit? It's a slightly different approach, I would say. So that you're right, that's a conduct. That's where there's an allegation being made about the employee. If there's a different situation where the employee is not performing, you would still investigate that to decide what the best way forward was. With a poor performance issue, probably you'd be dealing with that informally anyway, and you'd only ever get to a formal disciplinary situation if you had tried a number of other things. So as an HR professional, you'd be wanting to establish what had already happened. Because as we all know in HR, someone will come to you and say, X is terrible, get rid of them, and X is none the wiser, they don't know anything about it. Yeah. There you'd be saying, well, let's just have a conversation, and that's probably where you'd put your efforts. So you're right. I'm talking about when someone has been accused of doing something more on the conduct side. Yeah, that's a bit crisper. And I would say it's more likely, you know, it's like an 80 20 thing from my experience that conduct is more likely to lead to a disciplinary hearing, whereas capability, because it's about often it's so many dynamics there. You know, it's how they're being managed. It's what training they've had. It's all sorts of other things that yeah. often are not best served by disciplinary hearing. Yeah. Also, so, last so investigation then, and I guess the whole point of investigation is making sure that you are really objective and I, and I could you evidence whether you are uh, being objective. Is there a kind of what's good in investigation and what's less good? So the investigation, it's really important to um, have uh, a lead that's properly trained and is very clear on what their brief is and who they're going to talk to, almost a plan, a time frame, etc. And obviously some investigations are quite light touch and some are more involved. 
sometimes you might appoint someone externally you know in the city we're talking about working in the city sometimes you want to go to another level so I even use forensic services so for example if I've had an allegation of fraud you know I can think of an example an allegation of someone um, fraudulently claiming expenses um, then I got all the the things the um, timesheets and the uh, taxi receipts that they'd altered forensically examined so I could show what they were like before and what they were like afterwards and when you've got something like that as a piece of evidence and you share it with the employee they're probably not going to deny they've done it because it's just so obvious so sometimes if you've got really good evidence in the investigation it makes the rest of the process so much easier Um, in terms of bad practice on an investigation I mean the, the obvious thing is not to do an investigation at all to say we didn't need to do an investigation it's really obvious they've done it but actually, you do need to have that. It's it's fair to the employee. And don't forget that you need to talk to the employee as well. They so investigation it. would be talking to the people making the allegation, any witnesses, people around it, um, and the employee, just kind of talking to and making notes of and looking for physical yeah. evidence and emails and right. things. And making it very clear that it's just an investigation, that they're not being disciplined. You're just finding out more to decide whether something's happened that needs further action. And the thing I always remind people about is, even if that person has done something wrong, don't get personal, support that employee. They're still your employee and it's very stressful to be investigated by your organization. So just think about that. Think about mental health, think about welfare. It may go against the grain, but it's hugely important. Tough on the facts, again, that is that innocence or proven guilty, just tough on the facts, um, but open-minded on the reasons for the facts and things. And the things that you would mention to an employee under stress ordinarily, like the EAP scheme, is highly appropriate here, highly appropriate. Hmm. Okay, so, um, right, so what do we do next then? So we've, we've done our investigation, and you look at, at those, you you've, you understand your disciplinary policy, so you've got underneath any assumptions, any other aspects that you'd need to... Well, one of the things I always like to do, if you're unionised um, and it's potentially, you know, significant or going to be a complicated case, I would probably have an early conversation with the union to talk to them about it because unions and HR can work very well together. But it's all about communication, transparency. Um, and so that can be very helpful. Um, and then the next thing you do is you decide that there's a case to answer and you compose a letter, you know, which um, you agree with the line manager, the person that's going to be chairing the disciplinary hearing, the person that's actually going to be making the decision, hearing the evidence and making the decision. And it's really important here to state that person is rarely ever an HR professional. And that's the line that gets crossed every day of the week. HR are there to advise, to guide, to challenge, but also to ensure that things are fair and that assumptions aren't made, et cetera, et cetera, that it's done properly, that it's done professionally, but they do not make the decision. And there's case law where it's evidence that HR has made the decision and not the line manager. And those dismissals have been deemed to be unfair because it's not the oh, really? HR role. I didn't realise that. So you're facilitator, basically. You're, you're, uh, you're custodian of process and fairness and you're facilitating that people are making, you're making it right. happen. And you're there to verify facts. So you might provide information on behalf of the company, like the sickness policy or, you know, that type of thing. But you're not there to make a decision. You know, and I think people have to be really, really clear about that. HR does not discipline people unless they work in HR. So it's the line manager roles. Um, And and I guess there's something it is quite important. You have the right level, isn't there? Because if people need to escalate or so you don't want to necessarily have the highest person in the organisation carrying it out. Is that right? 
There's that. And there's also picking someone that can handle the case. So, you know, for example, if you've got an allegation of, you know, I can think of one where um, a member of our staff was accused of um, offences to do with children. This is but the police rang us up and informed us about it. And we had to discipline him for bringing the organisation's name into disrepute. It was hugely emotive because people were saying, I don't want to work with him. He's done that. And we're saying he hasn't done that. He's being investigated by the police. But anyway, we had to pick someone to hear that, that that we knew could handle what they were going to hear. Because actually that was going to be quite difficult um, evidence to hear. Um, And someone that had a cool head, you know, wasn't going to be terribly emotive. So sometimes you pick someone because of their personal um, profile, but also you're absolutely right. In a small organisation, you do have to think about if it was escalated, it went up to appeal stage or something like that, who would hear it? But don't forget, it doesn't necessarily have to be someone more senior. It could be someone on the same level or it could be someone connected in with the organisation, like an NED or someone like that. There's always somewhere to go. OK, uh, so so that's interesting. So if, would you advise that the line manager should do it if they want to or the or would you say actually it's better not to or is it very on the circumstances? varies in the circumstances Mm. ideally it would be the line manager and i think most line managers would not want to do it Mm -hmm. because most line managers uh want to do the nice stuff not nasty stuff and they don't want hr to do it and some hr are quite willing to do it we just said that's a no-no so i'd want to be really convinced the h the line manager couldn't do it but there may be situations in which i would accept that if the line manager had had problems with stress mental health issues or whatever then I would almost certainly appoint someone else because it can be very harrowing for someone to do something like this, depending on what the case was. Or maybe it's uh, a difficult relationship or, or you know, I was just wondering if, they did, if there wasn't a strong relationship of trust between the two. Might that increase yeah, the chances yes of the and no. Yes and no. I, I, yes, yes and no, depending on what's documented and everything. I suppose the HR role there is to judge it and make the best recommendation to um, benefit the organisation, the line manager, and make sure that the individual is going to get a fair hearing. And uh, that, that's the most important thing, that impartiality. You know, that person is innocent until proven guilty and making sure that process is, is really fair. Um, and then making sure that everybody involved, including the person that's been accused, is aware of what's happening when, briefing everybody in, um, and making sure that you, if you're sitting on that panel, that disciplinary hearing, or someone else, really understands the culture of the organisation and any customer practice because it's relevant. So that's particularly important if you've got an external person. Um, right, yeah. Hearing it. Yeah. And customer practice is just like the way things are being done, even though they're not documented, basically. It's not a formal policy, but that's, yeah. And, and actually, just to add on that, sometimes things that are written down don't bear any resemblance to how things are actually done. And you need to have the two there because it's not helpful to refer to the formal thing if that doesn't happen at all ever. Right, Okay. So um, if we were to kind of go through in a step-by-step way in terms of the process, so, so what you do in advance, how you'd run the hearing, you know, so sort of the, the sort of so in advance, or steps. Yeah, okay, so, um, so in advance, you'd write to the individual, you'd give them the right of representation, you'd explain um, where oh, you sorry, were. Sorry, explain a bit about that, sorry, representation, what, what's that? So they, everyone has a legal right in the 1996 Employment Rights Act to be represented by a trade union official or an employee. 
I have to mention at this point, the HRI have got CIPD to agree to challenge that and update it so independent HR professionals can be included. But that, as you can imagine, changing the law doesn't happen overnight. But anyway, <laughs> that reflects the past and obviously independent HR professionals are on the increase. But so that, yeah, trade that, unions that, and decrease as well. So actually, on the decrease, yeah, that's yeah. my point. That's yeah. my point. Um, so and actually, and everybody doesn't want to be represented by a colleague. So what does a colleague know? They want to be represented by someone who understands the process because it's yes. tremendous scary and so that's where an independent HR professional would really add value because and also HR and HR work brilliantly together in the same way that HR and trade unions do and often what you find with trade unions again sometimes is they may have a bit of an old-fashioned view about everyone's roles whereas HR and HR are sort of always on the same wavelength yeah that person the representative is someone to support the employee now sometimes you might agree that that person doesn't have to be um, an internal colleague and they can bring someone else in. And you've got to use your judgment on this because sometimes it can be great to allow them to bring in their husband, wife, best friend. But before you know it, you've just you've got a solicitor in there that you didn't realise that they happened to do that or something. And then it turns into something else and you can lose control of the hearing, particularly when you're doing things virtually. So yeah. I'd always be helpful, particularly if someone had a disability or were very concerned, I'd use my judgment. But it's finding that balance between just making sure that the organisation retains control of the process and gets the right outcome and not letting someone in that's got no right to be there that then creates havoc. Right. Um, that's, and sometimes happen. That's a bit delicate, isn't it? Because I was just thinking in a really small business, you might not there might not be very many people who've got options to bring in terms of employees. One's in a big business you if you're doing it. So you might want someone external, but can you say if you can bring someone external that you it can't them, be legal? You can allow anything. You can allow anything, Miss Inder, but they don't have the right. The point is legally right. they only have the right to a work colleague or a trade union representative. So uh, if they wanted to bring someone else, you'd ask who and You'd ask, you'd ask lots of questions about it and want to understand it. And I would say the worst person to bring in is that person's partner because mm. they are their partner. Mm-hmm. They're not on your side and they're going to get very emotional and you're going to constantly be adjourning it and saying, no, you can't say that, no, you can't do that and being really, really clear on the roles. All that said, I've had some great experiences of allowing someone to support someone that's very nervous. Um, you know, manual workers that aren't used to formal situations, young people, those types of people that are absolutely terrified having the right person with them really supports them. And and let's be honest, you know, not everybody will get dismissed. They might stay in the organisation. It might just be a hearing. It's actually a positive experience in a sort of strange way if the organisation has been that supportive. Gives a confidence in the system kind of thing if it works well. Yeah. 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 Okay, sorry, I I took you off your second point. So (laughs) where was I going? So yeah, Yeah. so so the letter is explaining very clearly what the allegation is. Yeah sharing any evidence, making sure that any evidence you share is redacted if you need to do that, Um, explaining when um, the hearing will take place, explaining the right representation, asking that that's confirmed back to you so you can manage that, um, and asking that they confirm they can attend. Sometimes people can respond in in a variety of different ways. They can just confirm they're going to come along, but they might go off sick or, you know, and you get into some of those scenarios. Yeah then if you actually get them to the hearing, you might have a situation where they refuse to attend and you might take a view that you'll have the hearing in their absence. So you go through the process. Sometimes you get people that are so frightened they want to do a written submission, which, you know, you can do. You always try and encourage people to come along, but it's obviously not a nice meeting to attend. Um, But you can do it in their absence. You go through a fair process. You document everything you've done. You make a decision. You inform the employee. Or you might have to um, hold back if someone has gone off sick, waiting to see 
if they'll return and then you're trying to coax someone in and often those situations turn into a settlement or something like that or the employee resigns sometimes people can get a letter like that and resign straight away just absolutely terrified you know and that's where you have to sort of try and get hold of them if they'll speak to you and just say look and explain whatever it may be etc but sometimes actually if it is probably looking like gross misconduct it's no bad thing yeah so um again it's about using your judgment right so assuming the employers said they can attend they've notified you of their representation um then um along they come and you've already spoken to your chair maybe it's your line manager whoever you appointed to hear um the allegation and hear what I'd call the management case and the employee um, case. Now, sometimes that dual role, the chair, the person making the decision can present the management case, or sometimes they might bring someone else in. So in this scenario of a sort of concerned line manager, they wouldn't be making the decision, but they would have to present the allegation, but the chair would be making the decision. And so they would present the allegation, the chair may ask questions, the HR manager may ask for points of clarity. The representation might ask for points of clarity. And then you'd hear what the employee had to say, their response to it. So how, how many people have you got? The chair, how many people have you got in the room here? I'm you not could sure have, you could have one or two people. So you could have one person hearing it. Yeah. That's normal and HR and the employee. That's the sort of smallest. But sometimes yeah. if you've got, you were mentioning an experienced line manager, you'd get around that by having a more senior person chairing it and making the decision and the line manager just attending to present their side of it. But ideally, it would just be the line manager just bring their employee um, with or without an HR person. It all depends on the culture of the organisation. It's a good thing. So you don't have to have, there doesn't have to be a third person at all, or does there have to be a a witness or some sort of? No, you just need to keep a record. So you could actually not have HR at all. They could just advise on it, and the line manager can go off, have the meeting, and report back. And you would just be making sure they knew what they had to do. The most important thing would be to make notes. Yeah. And those notes could just be a record of the meeting. They don't have to be verbatim. But there are all sorts of apps now that you can use. Rev.com is one that I use that make yeah. the notes for you. You can have it on your phone. So you don't need to have a person. Thing. Yeah. 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 That saves a lot of hassle, doesn't it? So so you, you have your meeting. You, um, you Obviously, you're having to use them virtually nowadays. You can do. But in the old days, it would have been face to face. You establish your roles. Um how long do they generally take or does it depend i guess you might have to do timeouts and stuff like that as well cake breaks good point. between i'd say between one and three hours really it depends on how complicated the case is and you know sometimes people do need time out need to calm down they can get upset um and, and sometimes it can be very quick um so normally I would say if I had a disability hearing, I'd, I'd have it in a mor- I'd have it in a morning or an afternoon, because the other thing that's quite good is if you can make a decision, tell the employee your decision and then write it up. You've got it all done in one fell swoop because the problem can be going back into the office and then not getting that letter out on time. And most disciplinary policies and procedures have a particular timeline that you've got to get the letter out so I say get it all done in one go block it out and get it all done really yeah and uh, it's a better for everybody there right you want to get it done and dusted whatever it is you don't want to be you know worrying about fretting over a weekend kind of thing true. it's very stressful and that's there's something about not ever doing it on a Friday leave it to a Monday because it kills everybody but there, yeah. there are situations sometimes when something comes up that you didn't know about that you hadn't picked up in the investigation from the employee or the manager mentioned something and it's decided to investigate that then you've got no alternative but to adjourn investigate and then come back and then once you've made your decision you might have told them verbally 
then you write to the um, employee, you draft a letter, probably HR draft a letter, which the, the person making the decision would then um, comment on and finalise. And it's really important at this point that it's their letter, not your letter. And, any, and they have to be really clear because they have to own that letter. And ultimately, if this then goes to tribunal, it's their letter, not your letter. So you need to make that point to them. The other thing that's really important to emphasise to everybody is confidentiality is king for everybody, including the employee. And I can think of situations where someone's been disciplined, but actually been innocent, where the whole world knows about it and their position has been untenable. And that's a problem for the organisation. You've really got to make sure everyone's really clear about not talking about it. And sometimes the employee can talk about it mm. and they need to understand this isn't going to help you. You need to keep this confidential. So mm. that's a really key thing. I was telling that being ahead of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then um, what's the sort of logistics in terms of you sent the, 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 they've taken ownership of the letter, they've sent it out. Um, they're, how long is the whole thing about people's records? Are the rules about how long things that have records, is, or is that a policy related thing? Is that legal or? Yeah, you, yeah, definitely. I mean, deciding on what the, um, if they're going to get a warning, how long it's going to be on their file, notifying them of that, making sure they understand that it is confidential. And, you know, sometimes people can take to social media, which we don't want, and that would be a separate offence. And they just need to understand that. Um, and also, actually, I have seen, I, I see too often people that have been disciplined telling people about it in a Facebook group on LinkedIn. And that is forever something you can't erase. So mm -hmm. you know, if you hurt and upset, don't do that. Um, sometimes, is that actually, I was just gonna say, that's an interesting one now. It's a kind of a modern world problem. And I wonder, is it, is, is it actually, a, is it only an offense if you've got it in your policy about confidentiality on social media, you know, it's a business? It's a good point. I, I was thinking less about it being a problem for the organisation and more a problem for the, in, the individual, particularly they've been dismissed because they might regret it. that. And I see people, yeah. I'm, I'm often DMing people and saying, I will just take that down. I know you're upset, but we don't need to know that you've just been dismissed. Just change it or word it for someone else or whatever. Yeah. And people go, oh, thank you. I didn't realise, I didn't think or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. Know, and HR people do that as well. Yeah. Um, and then from an HR point of view, you've got to think about things like... Um, the welfare of the employee, the welfare of any remaining staff, you know, if you have dismissed that person, how you communicate, what the communications are, being clear on the appeal process. Maybe you think a settlement might be appropriate. You know, maybe you, you can't see a way forward or the employee is so upset that, you know, time out um, needs to be considered or whatever. So lots of different things to think about, really. Um, and the only other thing to add is you'll have made notes, they'll have made notes. You need to decide whether you're sharing them. You don't have to. And I generally probably don't, but it does depend on the policy of the organisation because that's your sort of internal record. Obviously, they could get hold of them if they wanted to do a SARS request. So it's just agreeing up front before you have the meeting. Are we going to share notes or are we not? Sometimes you get situations where the employee takes notes, but doesn't share them, and the employer does. And I kind of like to have things even. So I'll share with you if you share with me, you know, it's transparent. It's interesting if you record it and share the recording, it's kind of neutral, isn't it? That in some ways exactly. it's not a perception. It's a real record of what was said. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's really useful. And I'm thinking there's, there are things that can go wrong and people can appeal and grievances. I'm thinking that, we've, well, we've got another ser another episode of this talking about grievances specifically of Rachel's role in, in that. Any other things that might go wrong or watch outs? Um, the biggest thing that can go wrong, I think, actually, is, and it's coming back to the role of the HR person, when the HR person gets too involved, 
or, or gets personal and has an opinion about um, what should happen or shouldn't happen. Um, I, I think that that can be very problematic, particularly if it goes further. I mean, what types of things can go wrong? The employee can go off with stress. They can make an employment tribunal claim, you know, or they can threaten it. And I sometimes see when someone threatens it, organisations go into, as you were saying earlier, a flat spin uh, and panic. And I always say, don't scare too easily. You know, everyone threatens that. Um, but choose your battles. You know, if they're going to be really difficult, maybe consider a settlement or maybe don't. Um, and the other thing you can sometimes get is a grievance that's raised the minute you call into disciplinary action. You've just got to take a view on that in terms of whether that's relevant. Um, and every organisation will do it slightly differently. And every HR practitioner will do it slightly differently. And the other thing to remember is that if you haven't got a policy or procedure, ACAS has guidance and that's the, the place to um, defer to. You know, I can think of a large organisation I did work with recently, a really large organisation that has no policy at all. They just defer to ACAS on everything. So sometimes that's, a, that's, that's an interesting um, approach as well, because one of the problems with having a detailed policy and procedure or putting one in is you absolutely have to comply with it. And sometimes HR people try and be helpful by saying, we'll get back to you in three days and we'll do this and we'll do that. And then if you don't do it, you're breaching your own policy, which is a problem. So I'm always a bit more err on the side of being helpful, but not being too specific. Um, but the big thing, I think, with all of this is, is communication and, you know, that employee is your employee um, right until their day they're dismissed and you still have the responsibility for their welfare. I mean, and, and that's been being that neutral person all the way through and to, to you know, show that they have, they're going through a fair process, basically. So it's, it's supporting both sides there, isn't it? They've done something wrong, potentially but that doesn't make them a bad person and they probably need more help than less help. And I've sometimes seen people almost be quite vindictive, which um, concerns me and I've intervened. You know, if, if an employee is leaving and they're very upset, you know, to say, what help would you give them if they were sick rather than in trouble? And they've done one thing wrong. So I think that's really important as well. Yeah, yeah. Great. Okay. Thank you very much. I mean, there's so many angles and go down that we could ask about, which I'm not going to on this one because we'll save it for another one. I was thinking there's all things about managing long-term sick and stress. I think that's a real challenge, isn't it? But definitely another subject. So, um, so again, as last time um, when we've spoken about this, you, you're writing blogs. You've got a series of papers that people can access from the HRI website. If you just remind us, we will put the link to the HR Independence website on the show notes, which are available at hruprising.com. But just remind us the website, Ruth, if people want to um, download Thank you. something. So our website is www.hrindependence.co.uk. We've got a Facebook group called HR Independence. And come and find me on LinkedIn, Ruth Cornish. I'd love to connect with you. Definitely, definitely advise you to look Ruth up. She was, she's always up for a good debate. She always gets a bit of, um, gets LinkedIn buzzing of, of a day as well. So you can get involved in the debates here and there about what HR should do and shouldn't do. That was a good one to look up. Yeah. So that's fantastic. Uh, Ruth, as ever, thank you so much for joining us on the HR Uprising podcast. It's really informative. I know people will find it really, really useful. And I know they can reach out to you as well. You're always open to help and collaborate with other independent HR professionals, whether that's independently minded within an organisation or um, whether it's actual HR indies in their own right. Thanks for joining. Thank you. I really hope you found this week's episode useful and enjoyable. If you did, perhaps you could recommend us to a friend or colleague or give us a review on your platform of choice. 
it really helps new listeners to find us. Now you can access links to any of the information mentioned in this show via the website www.hruprising.com. Further free resources are also available at www.actus.co.uk. There you can also find out more about our software and training solutions. Finally, why not join our LinkedIn group, The HR Uprising, to share ideas and collaborate with other like-minded people professionals. Thank you for listening to The HR Uprising podcast.